When was the last time you had a good conversation about something you love over drinks? Coffee, tea, or at the bar? I've had some of my best conversations about music while sharing a beverage with a friend. In this series, members of the Adjective New Music Composers Collective sit down to discuss pieces and composers we love over drinks. Today, Andrew Martin-Smith and Carter John Rice join me to discuss Eleni Lilios' piece for piano and live electronics called Nostalgic Visions. The first time I encountered this piece was at the at my very first Seamus, was, which was uh, 2011. Um, and, you know, I had been to... I had been to uh, electronic mu- music Midwest, uh, I think, a couple times at that point. But you know the the shock of Seamus, with you know, with the thirty concerts or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I tried to go to a lot of them. And uh, at you know, at the end of you guys know, at the end of that time, you're just fried. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's so much music, so much music, and it's all so unfortunately it's also similar at at that time it was really like the the gray reverby sound world in a cave that's moving around and doesn't really do much <laughs> and that was the piece that i was hearing over and over again and over and over <laughs> and over <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then this i remember this piece in particular just because it was, I mean, it, it stood far above the rest. And I mean, I had, you know, being going to BG, you know, I had some sort of relationship with Elaney. So I was like, particularly, uh, I, I was particularly into hearing a piece of hers. But even if it wasn't hers, like if it, if, if it was another composer, this piece would have just blown me away. It has that effect. <laughs> you know, it, it does. And, and I think um, there are a bunch of different reasons for that, I think. Uh, but I think a lot of this has to do with the, the obsession she has with um, sound and, and morphology of sound. I think that's something that's really interesting with regard to this piece, especially since there is so much improvisation. Um, and yet it's never, it's never really unstructured to my ear. Yeah. I was actually really surprised when I, um, because I asked, uh, I asked her for the score because I was going to present on it. Uh, this, this was during my, uh, DMA. So I had, I was going to do a presentation on it in a, in a class and I asked her for the score and for the patch. And when I opened it, I was like, Oh my God! This is, <laughs> you know, th- this this is almost entirely controlled improvisation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, interestingly enough, I I not only listened to this but uh, uh, dug around for my copy of the score. And as it occurs, I have two copies. I actually have one of her older versions from around two thousand and nine, and then. Uh, one that she subsequently edited, and there's there's uh, very significant differences um, in the recording that Tom Rosencrantz does at the New Music Festival. So I thought that was fascinating to kind of take a look at. What are some of the differences? Um, the uh, very opening of the piece, um, the inside the piano work is not initially how uh, the piece begins. Um, there's there's the initial impulse, the strike of the um, the triangle beater on the sounding board of the piano, and that's how the whole thing kicks off with that first gesture. Um, so there's a lot more. It's a, it's much more spacious at the beginning of the composition in the in the edit, which I love. Yeah, and, and actually on that note, um, Rob, do you do you recall who performed it at Seamus back in two thousand? Was it Tom or was it someone else at that point? Yeah, it was Tom Rosencrantz. Okay, um, yeah, because and and Andrew, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, yeah, I, I have the same score as you do, and I'm looking at it right now. You know, and it begins with the you know right inside the piano, and um, mm-hmm. I have never seen the updated version of the score because I think it's still a pretty reasonable facsimile, you know, of even a, of a performance today. But I remember, um, 
you know, my internal view of the piece is, is this score. And so I remember seeing Tom do that sort of inside the piano gesture. And he, he doesn't do it for super long in any of his performances that I've seen, maybe 30 seconds, you know, somewhere in that, mm-hmm. maybe a minute, you know, if he's really, but um, I saw Keith Kirkhoff play this piece um, at Splice last summer. And I remember just being taken aback because he spent like, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm not exaggerating when I say it was like four minutes of like scraping around inside the piano. <laughs> oh my wow. God. And, and, I mean, and, wow. and it also brings to, to bear an interesting point that both Keith and Tom um, do great performances of this piece, but depending on the day they performed it and the recording you heard, you might think it was a different piece because of how much um, improvisation there is at times. It, it was a completely different experience having listened to Tom's recording of it for years and then finally hearing someone else play it. I don't know if either of you have ever had that experience with it, but. Oh, that, that is, that is so cool. I can't say that I've had that experience, but I can imagine it. And I think this goes back to what I was talking about, maybe the strength, uh, of Eleni's gesture, uh, gestural writing in this piece, because obviously the large scale form, I mean, she does notate in the, in the new score that it's, um, the opening is, I think, curiously, and I think it's supposed to last around 20 seconds or so is that inside the piano, um, uh, kind of activity. And, and so, uh, uh, Within the individual gestures, I think there's so much shape and motion that the piece can uh, survive, if you will, uh, some radical interpretation, which I think is very, very striking. You know, the uh, the inside the piano stuff at the very beginning, I got to be honest, it's never worked for me. <laughs> it's funny. like the one part of the piece that I don't like. You would have not liked Keith's interpretation in Michigan last summer. I, <laughs> it would have thrown you off. I don't. Yeah, yeah I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> well, and actually, it's it's an interesting thing in general with Keith's performance of it, too, because it changes the piece so much. I feel like any of the moments where it was sort of um, either slightly more loose in its improvisation, whether in terms of time or the instruction given, Keith really sort of pushed that envelope. And I remember even some of the passages near the end, um, he just went, and, and now I, you know, I'm kind of remembering from a year ago, but it seemed like minutes longer than maybe Tom would have taken portions of the piece, um, if, hmm. if not at least close to a minute. And I don't think that there's necessarily anything incorrect in, in performing it that way, but man, does it change um, the, the overall... Uh, uh, I mean, the, the the big picture is still the same, but the the arrival points really had a, mm. a very different performance. And I, I actually I've been meaning to listen because I know Keith recorded it for the the Seamus CD a couple of years back, and yeah. I haven't yet to listen to his recording of it. I need to do that, like side by side with Tom's, and see really see what the difference is. So we'll listen to the two performances now. First, we'll hear Tom's, and then we'll hear Keith's. As a, I know as a composer, a lot of us tend to be, uh, some of us could be very exacting about how we want every little nuance and every little gesture. And uh, a time or two, I'm always, I'm always just so fascinated in giving the blueprints to a variety of performers and hearing the just the wild range of interpretations, even from the same physical score mm-hmm. and instruction. And I, I actually marvel at that. And I, I kind of welcome that in a lot of my pieces. So mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting and it would be fascinating to do a kind of a side-by-side comparison and and see how these 
two different interpretations of the same piece, right? I mean, obviously we can never have the same piece ever uh, heard again exactly the same way for obvious reasons that it exists in time, mm-hmm. but such uh, such glaring discrepancies would be quite fascinating. And I, I think that's where a lot of the really cool musical nuance uh, lies. Yeah. Uh, something else interesting that you you had mentioned, uh, we started talking about kind of which parts of the piece were uh, that we maybe liked more or less. And uh, it's funny that... Rob, you talked about the beginning, right? Um, yeah, the just just the inside the piano stuff because it's yeah, you, you know it's very it's it's pretty dry. There, I don't there are no there are no electronics on that part. The only electronics that happen are when she finally or when uh, the pianist finally does that that big strike and mm-hmm. you get the uh, you know thing. Yeah, but yeah, that opening before it, it's never it's never really worked for me. See, I I don't mind that as much, especially as something like that at the very beginning, because it is, uh, I think it's easier for a listener to take in that, that time and that kind of wandering and meandering. And then the first gesture is so strong that I, I kind of say, oh, okay, so this is kind of the prelude or the, or the introduction, and now the piece proper begins. That, that seems to work for me. What, what's interesting is I actually... My least favorite part is actually the end, and that's not to say that I don't like it. It's just in comparison of the rest of the piece, uh, I find the middle of it, that that folk-like, inside-the-piano-plucked melody, mm-hmm. uh, to be so incredibly beautiful, uh, and with the electronic harmonization behind it, so, so very haunting in a way, um, that the end for me is not exactly what I would have wanted, but maybe that's also part of the whole... Uh, nostalgia sure what do you mean it's it's not like it's not what you have wanted because you know it it directly it it goes it it, de- it definitely goes back to the inside the piano stuff that that you you're saying that folk like melody like it's the same materials so what is it about the end that that works inside the piano and doesn't work on the keys uh, I think for me, it's the fact that it's on the keys. So it's gone to a more traditional space. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the keyboard playing is the present, right? That's, I think that's. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the, um, the dream, the dream state is on the inside of the piano. And then which, the... she, which she mentions in her, in her notes. Yes, yeah, and I think then the 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 actual uh, remembering of things, the nostalgia is where both inside and keyboard work are happening simultaneously, where you're you're actively recalling memories in the present. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's how it works. And this uh, so this ending for me, it's on the keyboard in the present with the electronics in the background, and I just I hear it. I hear it in gesture and in in form and shape as kind of fading into nothing. And I think there is a, a an alniente marking uh, that this this melody and electronics kind of just trail off into the distance. Um, and I I personally don't love that idea. Not that I'm saying I'd want an exclamation or some kind of punctuation, but I I wasn't necessarily expecting that after hearing the rest of the piece. You know that's interesting because I. Th- I had the the kind of opposite reaction to that. I I felt like the entire piece was heading towards that moment. Mm. You know, every everything was everything before it was preparing us to get to that place because when that when that does come back, you know, it's it's very heavy on um it's very heavy on F sharp, you know, which is which has been an important mm-hmm. note note throughout the work and it's it's the first note that we hear, you know, the yes. the repeated high F sharp. And we keep coming back to that. And and also uh to a lesser extent C sharp as well, which fa- which again factors heavily into that that place. But when when we finally get there, because we've been set up and we've we've had like the materials deconstructed throughout the beginning of the piece, when we finally get there, it feels like we finally reached we we've reached the place that we're that we were going to the whole time. Hmm. hmm. Yeah, I can. You know, I can see a case for what you're saying with that, Robin. Uh, yeah, that that high F sharp is something I would love to to ask her about. You know, <laughs> like I feel like uh, at least. I mean, I, I've I've really loved this piece for years, but at least back when I was uh, studying with her, 
I was smart enough to know not to question anything in her music, even if it was out of pure curiosity. Um, so I, I certainly wouldn't have done it back at the time. But I would love to sort of hear, because I feel like if I had sort of brought in a piece um, to her that maybe, you know, and this is total extrapolation, but that began on sort of this high F sharp and then arrived to it again in a, in a, in that, in at least in the fashion that she approached it, that she might caution me against that and that we do see that so strongly here. Um, it's interesting, though. I, I guess, Andrew, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I don't get off-put by the end at all. Um, but who knows? I, I think it's just because, like, I'm just too big of a fanboy of this piece. Um, and because... <laughs> well, well, part of that, though, is because... I, I don't know if I'd mention this, but this was, like, the piece that got me into doing electronic music. And so it, it, it became the archetype, you know, in my head. So I, I can approach it critically, but at the same time, I always sort of end up viewing it as, like it can do no wrong and that other pieces fall flat against it. And I, I, and whether or not we all hold it to that same degree, we do, I think all at least agree that it's at a very high standard. So if this is going to be my benchmark, you know, it's, it's a good one. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm going to reiterate the fact that it's, it's not that I don't like it. It's just something that did take me aback mm -hmm. in, in the, in the listening experience of it. And I think it's also interesting to mention that, uh, we, we talked about this F sharp, uh, as being, a uh, a point of departure. And then, uh, we come home to it more or less, but I think the very last high, obviously I think we have a low F sharp, don't we? In the, at the very end. But I think the high note is actually F natural. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay. So, so my memory isn't failing me. That's good. Yeah. And so this idea that we have we have this F sharp land, and then we're we're going away from that. Still, it's it's. Uh, I guess to me, it just sounds like a giant fade out, right? Mm -hmm. That the music continues. Uh, I suppose maybe like the memory continues even when we're at, we're not actively thinking about mm -hmm. it. So I mean, there there could be a narrative structure uh, that goes along with it. It's just I I don't know. For for me, maybe it's just the fact that it's this this gradual decrescendo uh, was just something that pulled me out of the context. Even if it does work with the the concept, mm -hmm. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Carter. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I actually have the same. I think the same level of fam, fanboydom, <laughs> fanboyhood, something, something Fan about you know, whatever. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, I think I have the same level with this piece, just because, like I said, you know, this this struck me so hard yeah. at that at that Seamus, mm -hmm. and um, and you know, I've I've subsequently taught the piece i've 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 you know included it in lectures uh, on on electronic music and stuff like that mm -hmm. so i've it it really holds a a deep-seated place in my heart like like when we were when we were talking um actually in your podcast mm -hmm. about recordings that you know uh, if you grew up with a recording sure. and you go to another one, like we were talking about Phantom of the Opera <laughs> yeah. and then Rite of Spring, uh -huh. you know, let's, let's pull let, a big callback. <laughs> yeah. There. Anyway. Um, such a great juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we, I mean, we were talking about, you know, the, those, if you grew up with a recording mm -hmm. and then you hear another one, it just, it, it doesn't feel the same. So it'd be, it'd be very interesting for me to listen to the, um, the the Keith Kirchhoff version, but at the same time, I think the Tom Rosencrantz version is the one that I was listening to for so so long, mm -hmm. and the one that I really developed a an a kind of image for the piece with. Sure, and it 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 actually be really interesting to hear the ends of each recording because she does say. I mean, it's just a melody, you know. She mm -hmm. just gives the right hand melody. Add embellishments and harmonic support as desired. Add right. harmonic support as desired. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's trust, man. Yeah, and actually, if you if you listen to Keith's performance, at least, uh, and again, my memory could be um, faulting me a little bit here, so I'll, I'll have to listen to some version of it again. But at least at Splice, I'm pretty sure that he was providing like almost block chords in the left hand to sort of accompany this, which is definitely hmm. not what Tom is doing. Um, he's doing some sort of arpeggiated gestures or it, it's often just yeah. by itself in the right hand. So we'll hear those two endings again. First we'll hear Tom and then we'll hear Keith. Mm -hmm. 
after listening to this recording of Keith, it really seems like he changed his performance uh, or his interpretation from one performance into the, into the next. Yeah, I remember thinking that this is a much more uh, kind of harmonically driven ending when I when I heard mm. Keith perform it than it was Tom. And uh, obviously that can have huge implications for, you know, how we perceive the end of a piece. But I, uh, I, I, I need to talk to, to Eleni about it at times too, you know, just see like... Because I, I, I mean, I don't know how many pianists have played it, but I always wonder what what it is that she likes that one person brings to it versus another, and I'd, I'd be curious to what what she thinks on it. And then, of course, we could ask the the terrible question: Does it does it matter? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I look at her score here, and I hear the music, and it's such it's such a risk, and I, <laughs> I'm I'm in awe, really, of of her. Uh, I, I don't I tr- you use trust I think Rob or maybe it was Carter now I don't remember yeah. the, the idea of trusting the performer to to execute something with with grace and um you know uh, uh, a scholarly learned kind of approach which could yield a variety of of satisfying musical results right but it's still a significant risk for a composer to put that much stock in a performer's musicianship to carry the piece. And there's obviously some uh, significant details. It's not like she's giving up uh, control of a lot of things, mm-hmm. but the overall form of the piece, and in some cases, the harmony, and that's that's really, it's very daring. If, if I might, I, I'd love to ask both of you guys a question, since we've all sort of admitted to, to one degree or another how much we like this piece or think that it works. I've, I spent a very long time sort of in my head reflecting upon and deciding what it is about this piece that works to me. Um, And that answer has changed over the years because I knew very little, you know, about (laughs) electronic music when I discovered it, you know? Um, (laughs) I I mean, I had only heard a handful of stuff and I heard this and I went, all right, that is what I want to do and I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go to Bowling Green and study with this one, you know, like I was on the warpath. But but I'd be curious if maybe each of you would want to if you if you can put it into words, what it is about this piece that that works for you, like why is it that you hold it um, in this this high of regard that we all seem to? Uh, for me, I think it uh, like you. I think it was a lot about the electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, when the when I uh, did a did a presentation on this piece, I actually paired it with um, the Davidovsky Synchronisms Number no. Six mm. because I, I had a I had a very specific angle that I was looking at, and it's the idea of this the, the idea of a hyper instrument, you know, electronics extending the instrument mm-hmm. to the point where you know it's uh, it's sometimes impossible to tell who's doing what. Yeah, you know, because I and I think I think Davidovsky has you know, certainly that the opening of Synchronisms number six is one of those moments where, you know, one uh, is is birthed from the other. And, and there, you know, I kind of highlighted many specific moments where I thought that even as rudimentary, I mean, you think about it now, it's like the electronics are so, so rudimentary. I mean, no, that's not the right word. They're, they're very complex and that he did, you know, it's an, it's an amazing piece. But in comparison, you know, we're just using synthesizers and, you mm-hmm. know, like additive synths to create these sounds. Whereas Eleni is, is doing something that's much more interactive. And, and so, but my po- whole point was that the, the idea of creating something that is so, it's capable of a lot of expression, but it's more or less homogenous, mm-hmm. you know, taking the piano and the electronics together. And that's what I think worked so well for me because, you know, I was at that time, I was also hearing a lot of pieces where it just seemed like the live performer and the electronics had absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> oh, yeah. each other. I've got a whole list of pieces you know? and, <laughs> that, that meet that definition yeah, and, yeah, and they of course. anger me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, so this this piece came at a point where I was really searching for something that that really melded the the two worlds so well, and I think this does. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. In fact, yeah. Yeah, as I'm as I'm thinking about this and and hearing the conversation, I'm thinking that that my name and some of my music is probably on Carter's hit list of, <laughs> of pieces that didn't work, and I would agree with him. <laughs> uh, if, if it's any consolation, it didn't come to mind. 
but um, <laughs> I, I will go back in my collection and listen to your stuff again tonight and then send you a scathing Facebook <laughs> wall post so everyone oh, can see it. <laughs> I look forward to that. That'll be delightful. Um, I think I think for me, I, I go back to this idea. I mean, uh, this 2009, right? This is at a point where she's using, uh, still using kind of the, the foot pedal triggering um, yeah. mechanisms. And within each one of those units, like I said, the, the gesture is so strong. So it, it survives, I think, uh, a whole host of different types of stretching temporally or, or even the materials themselves changing. But the electronics is doing something very specific in that moment with the sound that it's capturing. Mm-hmm. And so each one of these tiny modules um, is just this little microcosm of a musical universe that's just, it has so much depth for me and, and so much shape. So from moment to moment, I'm, I'm really listening to the present mm-hmm. uh, experience of the piece. And I think that's what I really take away from it as being so um, engaging. Sure. Yeah, and I and I would agree with both of you guys. It, it one cool kind of story about not not this piece directly, but it does. It certainly relates. Is that um, I think my second or third semester at Bowling Green, we we were in studio class, and uh, we had sort of like more weeks than we had students that semester. So she actually presented on one of her pieces, kind of like we would normally do in studio class, and she happened to talk about. Um, among fireflies, the alto flute and electronics piece, which is also really cool. Oh uh, yeah, and and it was it was cool yeah. because it, well, first of all, for me this was cool because this was the first time I'd ever really seen her present on her music, and I don't know what I was expecting, but for some reason I wasn't expecting her to kind of like have a PowerPoint and say like, well, I thought in this area I would choose these pitches, and it was just like very humbling in a way because I was like, oh, she thinks the same things, like she's human, you know, like I I, I thought <laughs> I thought for sure that it was gonna be like. You know, like, and at this at this moment, I gave birth to the Max Patch, and it existed in the world, and just like you know, and the the atomic particles aligned, just something that blew was going to blow my mind, and I was like, oh no, she's just like she's really disciplined and hardworking, and she's got a great sense of timing, and yeah. But but what was cool is that she she opened up her whole presentation by talking about how she still feels that the word that best describes her is an acousmatic composer, which is obviously. Mm you know, in the the fixed audio world tradition, you know, is, is where we're usually going to put that word. And she right. sort of tries to bring that acousmatic quality of gesture and shape and, you know, it, into her pieces for instrument and electronics. And, and I think that they all succeed. I actually think that the opening of Among Fireflies might be the strongest example of acousmatic live instrumental music I've ever heard in my life. It's just, it's otherworldly. Mm. Um, and and it's really cool how this piece brings that to life. And it, it, it also going on to the the organic nature. You know, we we're talking about um, uh, you know, we we're talking about the improvis the the improvisation of this piece and how important that is. And you know, Rob, thinking about Synchronism Six, you know, that's a, a it's a whole different animal because it's a piece for fixed media and and piano. And, Completely. And we would not be having this conversation about how radical the performance can be differently, you know, uh, with with Ho- this piece. Right. Yeah, if it was. No, I mean, it, there, there are differences. Don't get me wrong, but every performance of Synchronism Six is pretty much the exact same length. You know, we're talking about whole minutes yeah, pretty being much. different. You know, on this, mm-hmm. and and I I don't know if you guys remember that I wrote this blog post where I said like death to the click track a while back, and I I, I, did, I didn't I didn't know that everyone on Facebook was gonna lose it like um but they did but it's funny because i have another one that i'm almost done with and i it's probably gonna be worse but i've sort of really started to in today's technological world want to move away for anything that's fixed that involves a human as well i i like fixed things but the, the minute you bring a human into it i like there to be at least some control even if it's just triggering sound files along the way so that the electronics progress with the performer not the other way around and and I think yeah. that our conversation at least yeah. gives some some validity to that because we would not be able to discuss the incredible nuances and difficulties and subtleties of the timing of this piece if it was just a one foot pedal and go. You know, it, it really changes things. Hmm. Yeah, and and I just like you in my own music that that has I like the last uh, fixed. Well, I shouldn't say that because I did I I, I must admit I did write a, a well I collaborated with a percussionist on a timpani and fixed media piece but mm-hmm. um and that was pretty that was last summer i think but but every other piece is always with you know it it i i don't th- yeah like you say death to the click track <laughs> i don't think you can do it anymore yeah i mean it doesn't make sense when when you have this other 
when you have this other uh, st- style or or this other technological means available to you. It just doesn't it doesn't make sense to. But I I think I think what you said about her being an acousmatic composer, and and how she thinks of herself as that. I think that's what works so well mm-hmm. for me about her um, her live electronic pieces because they. I actually, um, I was at uh, the, I was at TIES, the Toronto International yeah. Electroacoustic Symposium. Um, uh, was it? I think it was a couple of years ago, and she was there, and she was doing uh, her the new piece with um, the percussionist Scott Deal, mm-hmm. um, the Rush, uh, Rush of the Brook, Brook Steals the Mind. Yep. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She was doing that piece, and. Um, I was kind of I was kind of hanging out with her almost the entire festival, which was awesome because she introduced me to a lot of the, you know, a lot of the bigger bigger composers in Canada, mm-hmm. uh like uh Robert Normando and uh Steve Naylor and um uh, uh you know, just just some other people. It and it was really cool to just kind of hang with her and talk with her. And I actually think I offended her <laughs> <laughs> because after her performance, we were we were walking we were going to catch the subway, and I was I was talking to her. I had never heard the piece before, so I asked her how much of that was fixed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was like, "Almost nothing." <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was it was almost all live, but I think she I think she took it a little bit the wrong way. Sure. Because my my point was that it was so freaking good. How could it be live? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I it was yeah. the the sounds were so amazing. How how is it even possible that this could be live? I knew it was live. Yeah, you know, but that my point was that it was so good. It was so good. You are a wizard <laughs> of live electronics. If that's what it sounds like, mm-hmm. you know. Hmm. Well, and and she really is, and it, it's funny too because I've seen other like like particularly at conferences like EMM or something where it's like like a, a first or second year undergrad, you know, gets in and you can kind of tell it's their first time at a, at a somewhat large conference or any conference at all. And I've seen people go up to her and ask like either that exact question or other ones. And you can just kind of tell she's been asked that a lot, which maybe that's the only reason she reacted to it weirdly. Cause she's just getting like so many times. So how much of that was fixed? And you know what I mean? She's like, she's just got a t-shirt that right. says it's all live, you know? Um, and, and well, and so you know what? Here's the other thing. Oh too. my God! You should make please <laughs> yes, make that yes, T-shirt for yes. us. Well, you know, and she's the one. I mean, I I got to spend a semester learning the basics of Max at my undergrad, but then I really learned um, majority of what I still use in that software um, uh, today from her. You know, I in, in classes and private lessons, and and I don't think she would disagree with me in saying this, but she is by no means like. A, a, a max like uh, master you know what i mean in terms of the technical programming side of it she's very good don't get me wrong but and i'm not either i'm just like very okay with max but th- that's one of the things that's absolutely great about her is that she doesn't spend uh, as much time as some people that are sort of the, the technical masters of it that really you know the ones that are programming their own objects and doing all these things she figured out what worked for her and then has continued to work deeper and deeper into that and so i've had conversations with her where i'm like hey you know i found this thing that sort of simplifies this object library that you and i both use in max and she'll be like well you know i'm gonna stick with what i have because i'm getting great results and then she keeps getting these great results without needing to just you know, endlessly spend time upgrading or tweaking or doing this, that, the other. She she does live processing with uh, the, the the tools that she's built very well, and she just keeps doing it over and over. It's it's incredibly effective. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the idea that uh, I, the technology is nice, and of course she she stays up on things that are current, mm-hmm. but it's really about the sound. Yeah. What is what is the yeah. sound in question? And how does that, how is that communicated? How does that move through space? I think that's very much the fundamental of anything she does. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also think that she, I mean, she's a composer first. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. And, and we, we all know that there are, there are definitely people that are in this field that 
are coming to it from a technology side rather than a composition side. Correct. Yeah. First and f- first and foremost. Sh- so should we name names I to think- upset some listeners? <laughs> <laughs> well, you you can, but I'm we'll, gonna we'll them edit out. them out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Oh my god, what if I did that? Sent you the file and then you put it in anyway. <laughs> um, but she, yeah. I mean, she's she's a composer first, and I think that. A lot of the, a lot of the the generation of composers that we are seeing that continue to to be so good in this field, you know the, I, I it gives me hope that this will remain the case. But all the composers that I see that are successful into you know that continue with technology, mm-hmm. that are into their forties, fifties, sixties, and beyond, you know they are all composers first Mm -hmm. and kind of the the technology people they just kind of fall by the wayside i think yeah yeah with rare exception maybe those people who are like the ultra technology it's it's kind of like now i happen to like his music but even if curtis rhodes wrote terrible music obviously he's sticking around you know what i mean um but he he writes cool stuff but i agree yeah hopefully and yeah and you know i i even uh now, granted, it's it's a number of students who have studied with her, but I always end up sort of singling out a few composers that are my age or a little younger and a little older that I that I immediately think, you know, those are the people that I imagine are we're going to be listening to in 30, 40 years and talking about, you know, when we when we knew them back when, <laughs> you know, and, and I think a number of them, like I say, happen to have studied with Eleni. Um, I was fortunate enough to study with her, too. Um, I don't I don't know if I'm going to be in the crowd that we're listening to in 30, 40 years, but I'm I'm friends. <laughs> I'm friends with those people, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, anything else to add? Uh Started watching Rick and Morty. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Just thought you guys should know. Right. Is this part of the procrastination stage? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, because I, I don't have a dissertation to work on or anything. But yeah. <laughs> Rick and uh, Morty. What's I don't I don't even know what that is. I mean, I I'm in China, man. I, I don't have anything. It's um like. it's like a it's a cartoon. It's like one of those Adult Swim cartoons, which I am normally incredibly oh, yeah, turned yeah. off by. I've never been a fan of like Aqua Teen Hunger Force or any of those things. Um, but this is like, imagine if Futurama and like Family Guy had a kid that it would be Rick and Morty and it's, it's actually pretty <laughs> hilarious. So I've been streaming it on Hulu. It's only like, it's only two seasons in it, This is unrelated. I fully expect this to make the cutting room floor, but I just thought, you know, pass along. Oh, no, man. <laughs> See, the thing is, as I've, as I've done more of these, I've gotten a lot looser with what stays <laughs> in, what, what, That's fair. what gets cut. <laughs> Good. No, but I I don't have a whole lot else to add. I mean, it's a wonderful piece. It got me into electroacoustic composition. I still go back to you know I whenever I'm working on a piece, I end up referencing that score to when I think about how do I want to notate something. You know, I go back to listen if I'm lacking inspiration or you know other of her pieces as well. And and even though I I can certainly you know critically and find some some shortcomings in this or other of her pieces for instrument and electronics, and I certainly like a, a few more than others. It it is a I mean, it works for instruments and like real time processing are still relatively in their infancy. You know, we didn't really have that processing power till the 90s or so. And um, I think that this piece or or another of hers from around the same era will be one of the early pieces that's in the canon of of this kind of repertoire. You know, I think it'll keep going. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. And I I think you've touched upon something that I think is really important and and why I'm actually excited about this this whole venture in this part of lexical tones that that we're engaged in is this idea that there are no perfect pieces, or at least correct me if I'm wrong, if you disagree with me, because I think that could be cool too. Mm -hmm. But I don't think... I don't think there's anything as a perfect piece, especially for another composer listening to somebody else's work. You're going to hear something where it's like, oh, I, I definitely would have done that or taken that particular direction for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Right. Because uh, obviously, from my perspective, most likely I'll make the choice that's going to make the piece suck that much more. Right. <laughs> um, but the idea that we can approach a piece of music that we have reverence for or that we find very compelling and still embrace it, even though there are things about it that maybe we would have done differently or that there are, are are some things that maybe are less attractive because some of the other parts are so freaking unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right there. I, I definitely agree. There are no perfect pieces, but for me, this one is in the, is in the high nineties. Yeah. You know, yeah. In, in, Easily. In, in ter- yeah. So it's pretty rad. Way to go, Eleni. 
<laughs> I, I'm sure she's just waiting at yeah. the edge of her seat for our <laughs> admiration. For our support. She's she like, has oh, really cared to get that endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> the lexical tones, thumbs up. Way Woo! to go. From three students who all used to go to the school I teach at. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No, this was Thank fun. you. So we'll end this episode of Over Drinks by listening to Keith Kirchhoff's recording of Nostalgic Visions, uh, available from or available on the disc Music from Seamus Volume 21 from Society of Electroacoustic Music in the United States. If you want to learn more about Eleni Lilios, please go to her website, elilios.com. And as always, if you want to hear more podcasts or anything else from Adjective New Music, please visit our website. Adjective new
Thank you. 